Elizabeth Warren's hilarious self-own, Teen Vogue hates capitalism, and Hillary Clinton is still in denial about her husband's predatory behavior in the White House 20 years later. All that and more in this week's edition of Problematic Woman. My name is Kelsey Harkness, and I'm a senior news producer here with The Daily Signal. And I'm Bree Payton, staff writer over at The Federalist and friend of The Daily Signal. So today we have a great show for you today. As always, we have a lot to unpack. First, we got to address kind of the elephant in the room here. Or the donkey. Yeah, or the donkey, right, because she's a Democrat. (laughs) right, so we've got to talk about this. Elizabeth Warren seems like she was trying to get a jump on her 2020 presidential bid. By finally answering the question once and for all, you know, whether or not she really is Native American or not, this has been something that Donald Trump has been repeatedly just really flogging her down with by calling her, you know, Pocahontas or Focahontas, if you like that version better, and saying that she's not really Native American. She just used this in order to um, get into and become a professor at Harvard and a number of other prestigious uh, institutions and places where she was deemed a quote-unquote woman of color. I kid you not, she was actually called that. Um, so this has been kind of a successful campaign tactic slash insult jab that Trump has been, you know, poking her with. And she just, you know, decided once and for all, we're going to settle this. So she took a DNA test. Results came back. And we have to tell you, she's... <laughs> Not really, maybe sort of once had a Native American ancestor about 10 generations back. She was 164th Native American, according to DNA results. Between 164th and 1 and 1024th Native American. Yes. Thank you for that. And and that's not even based on uh, Native American DNA. That's based on DNA from Mexico and other countries because they don't Columbia. actually have... Uh, DNA to so this has this. actually been like a point of contention within the Native American um, community here in North America, here in the United States, where, you know, Native Americans actually don't really like to give their genetic material, give their DNA to these kind of, you know, companies in order to crowdsource and figure out exactly, you know, what their uh, genomes are and things like that, because they have been, and I mean, this is true, they have been taken advantage of repeatedly by different things. So it makes sense that they're just kind of skeptical of this. And I, too, share the skepticism. I don't want a company having my genetic information um, and being able to you know, have that information out there. So anyway, this is actually a really big point of contention. And the Cherokee Nation came out with a statement really, really harshly critiquing her. So a spokesperson for the tribe said, using a DNA test to lay claim to any connection to the Cherokee Nation or a tribal nation, even vaguely, is inappropriate and wrong. It makes a mockery out of DNA tests and their legitimate uses while, it also, while also dishonoring legitimate tribal governments and their citizens, whose ancestors are well-documented and whose heritage is proven. So this is really, really bad because it really goes to show that if she really had any connection to this tribe at all, she would know that, right? She would know that this is a point of contention among the Cherokee people. She would understand that taking a DNA test, you know, spitting into a thing um, isn't how you prove where you, which tribe you belong to, because that's not the criteria that they have for proving that, right? So, so not only is she really, really, really white, according to DNA results, and very, like, 99.99% European, 
she, um, she also clearly is so far removed from the tribal community and the Cherokee Nation that she didn't know this going into it. So I think overall came out very, very bad. Media rollout, however, of this story was hilarious. Boston Globe ran a piece that was like really earnest, like, oh, once and for all, Elizabeth Warren proves she has Native American ancestry. And CNN kind of ran with that, as well as the New York Times. Um, meanwhile, everyone else who is not deluded was just laughing hysterically, <laughs> which I think is the appropriate response. Yeah, in many ways, this situation, um, you know, showed more about the media than it did Elizabeth Warren. But look, I think it was a huge mistake on Elizabeth Warren's behalf. She really you know, um, sunk down and and, and showed that Trump's taunting is getting to her, which isn't a good uh, sign going into potentially a presidential bid. So one of the big things that's been debated about this whole DNA test is whether she's used her Native American heritage to further her career at Harvard. And what I found really interesting about this is that right now at the Daily Signal, I've been covering this lawsuit that a group of Asian American students are bringing against uh, against the school. And these students, Asian American students, are alleging that Harvard is systematically discriminating against them based on their heritage, their Asian American race. Um, and so on one hand in the media, we're, we're talking about a woman who potentially used this fake heritage to her advantage. And then on the flip side of that, we have a minority community who legitimately actually has evidence to show they are in some form being discriminated against uh, at Harvard. And, um, you know, I think the timing is unfortunate for Elizabeth Warren in a lot of ways leading up to the midterms. But to have these two stories at the same time of a of a white woman using a fake heritage to further to potentially further her career and a, a minority group in America that really, you know, says they're discriminated against, I think, is an unfortunate look for her. She really she really botched that one. Um, Hopefully she has a little bit more self-awareness after this going forward and treats this issue a little bit more sensitively. But we'll have to see. (laughs) All right. Moving on. Teen Vogue set Twitter on fire this week with a very ignorant tweet that read can't end poverty without ending capitalism. So this tweet linked to a story uh, that Teen Vogue ran uh, you know, that was basically an anti-capitalism story. So listen to how this described capitalists, okay? Individual capitalists are typically wealthy people who have a large amount of capital, money, or other financial assets invested in businesses and who benefit from the system of capitalism by making increased profits and thereby adding to their wealth. So I really take issue with this description as someone who I'm a capitalist, diehard through and through, um, but I'm not particularly wealthy at all by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I have student debt that I'm still working off. Um, My savings account isn't that hefty, to be honest. But I like the fact that I get to own property and that things that are mine are mine, right? I, I don't like this push that we're seeing for socialism um in part because i think a lot of the push for socialism 
is the push for not really socialism. It's just like more free things that we can't afford. But so, so it's maybe less bad what these people actually want, but they are so uneducated and misrepresenting the yes. facts and the truth about what socialism really is. So they, when they say they want more free stuff, you know, you're exactly right. What they really want is, um, you know, to look like a Scandinavian country, for example, which actually is a capitalist country. Uh, they just have a lot of, um, you know, socialist policies when it comes to things like healthcare. But I think this is a really um, dangerous trend that we're seeing bubbling up on behalf of a lot of very young Americans. They're glamorizing socialism. It seems to be honestly like the cool thing to do to call yourself a socialist, to identify as a socialist. And I'm just wondering what's happening in the school systems that they are not learning uh, what a true socialist country is like or, or true socialist economy is. I mean, why isn't Teen Vogue sold in China? Because it's banned. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even there are other issues with this article as well, just like basic factual things. Okay, so the origins of capitalism are complicated, Teen Vogue writes, and stretch back to the 16th century when the British systems of power largely collapsed after the Black Death which was a plague that killed up to 60% of Europe's entire population, a newly formed class of merchants began to trade with foreign countries, and this newfound demand for exports hurt local economies and began to dictate overall production of pricing goods, Um, and it also led to the spread of colonialism, slavery, and imperialism. The death of feudalism, a hierarchical system that often is seen as oppressive that kept poor people bonded to their master's land um, when they farmed in exchange for a place to live and military production, also left rural British peasants with no homes and no work, which eventually, okay, blah, blah, blah. My issue with this is this description that merchants like invented the concept of trade, right? That merchants invented the concept of capitalism, which, okay, it's true that, you know, the death of feudalism coincided with a more hearty embrace of capitalism. Okay, like that's factually true. But the concept of capitalism and the concept of trading isn't something that was just invented like 500 years ago, right? This is something that's ingrained into the human DNA. It's having property rights and the argument for property rights um, and, you know, all the natural law forms of government that came about as in part of the Scottish Enlightenment and the system that we have here in the United States, which is built on the concept of natural law, you know, says that men have a right to their own property. And this is something that's ingrained in human nature. It's ingrained in our DNA. It's something that we've been doing for thousands and thousands of years since man has walked the earth. This isn't something that was just suddenly invented 500 years ago. So I don't know, the idea that everything was completely different and that men property rights weren't really a thing before 500 years ago is really just a huge oversight uh, on the part of this article um, that I really took issue with. And just their whole description of how capitalism came to be and why it exists is really just wrong from beginning to end. 
I hate this word, but in a lot of ways, this article is attempting to virtue signal and to say people who identify as socialists care more about ending poverty than people do who identify as capitalists. So I just want to wrap up this topic by pointing out a very basic fact um, brought to you by Arthur Brooks at the American Enterprise Institute. The number of people living in extreme poverty worldwide declined by 80 percent. From 1970 to 2006, when globalization, free trade, and our modern-day capitalist system really took off. And we'll be right back with more right after this. New York Magazine finally decided to include a couple of conservative women in their Powerful Women series, which is the cover story in this current issue of the magazine. And they included a write-up of U.N. Secretary Nikki Haley and Susan B. Anthony President Marjorie Danifizer. Um, While we applaud the magazine for not ignoring conservative women for once, we can't help but finding it a little bit insulting to see Nikki Haley placed right next to Stormy Daniels. So, Brie, I spotted this when Nikki Haley tweeted out that she was honored to be standing next to all these other powerful women. It was so nice to finally see conservative women featured in a quote unquote women's magazine. But so I'm watching this video and it's like Nikki Haley and others like other kind of liberal women. And then all of a sudden I see Stormy Daniels face pop up and I'm like, what is she doing anywhere near the same platform as our as our U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley? Um, Look, I'm still glad that Nikki Haley and Marjorie and others were were included for once. I think it's sort of this year has sort of been a wake up call for a a lot of women, uh, really the country. I think specifically the confirmation process of Brett Kavanaugh um, has has woken the country up to the fact that women are very diverse. We have very diverse opinions and we don't all think um, we don't all think the same. So, um, you know, good on them for including conservative women. But I'm sorry, I don't know what Stormy Daniels has done to deserve a spot on that list. Yeah. And her face was actually like the cover of the magazine is like her. And it's like, boom, power. Yeah, and I think that there's a difference between power and attention. Attention. And I think that that's something that our society doesn't seem to totally understand right now. And I think that this is kind of what we're seeing, right? Attention is power. Um, Well, Nikki Haley Haley has worked her whole life to, of course, not to get on a cover of New York Magazine, but she's worked her whole life to be a powerful woman, to be in a leadership position. And so to put her accomplishments next to someone who signed a non-disclosure agreement about alleged you know, sex, uh, sexual relations with yeah. President Trump and then went back on that agreement um, for attention or for political reasons, that's not power. Right, right. And yet, like New York Magazine thinks that it is. Right. We think that it is. And a lot of people unquestioningly are like, oh, yes, she's powerful because she's getting a lot of attention. Right. What is power? What is attention? What is just noise? Like our society is so bombarded and controlled by whoever can make the most noise in the room. Um, So anyway, I think that that's just kind of an interesting, weird 
dynamic that we're seeing played out in the front line. Speaking of interesting and weird dynamics. And powerful women. And powerful women. Whether or not we like her or not. Whether Yeah, whether we like it or not, Hillary Clinton, self-proclaimed feminist, still cannot own up to and admit the nature of her husband's affair with a White House intern and all the problems that came along with it. Here's her talking about when she was asked whether or not, you know, Bill Clinton, her husband, abused his power as president of the United States to have an affair with, you know, 22 year old White House intern at the time. This is what she had to say. Do you think Bill should have resigned in the wake of the Monica Lewinsky scandal? Absolutely not. It wasn't an abuse of power? No, no. There are people who look at the incidents of the 90s and they say a president of the United States cannot have a consensual relationship with an intern. The power imbalance is too Who was great. an adult. Where's the investigation of the current incumbent against whom numerous allegations have been made and which he dismisses, denies, and ridicules? Yeah, so that's where she's saying it. And I think, honestly, just hearing this clip and hearing her talk about this and the fact that she hasn't reconciled with what happened 20 years ago in 1998, this is why she lost two years ago, because she is just unwilling to recognize reality as it is and as it was 20 years ago today, right? And this is the larger problem that we're seeing. Of course, her husband abused his power. Monica has said in a recent article that she wrote for Vanity Fair in light of this whole discussion that we've been having nationally in light of the Me Too movement, she said that, you know, I she wasn't assaulted. She wasn't forced. She wasn't raped. But is consent, what role does consent play when you're a White House intern who's 22 years old and the man who is going after you is the president of the United States. The most powerful man in the world. Exactly. Like, it would be really difficult to say no and get out of that situation. Um, And he knew that. He knew that this was a situation where it would be really hard slash maybe impossible for her to be able to say no and retain her job. And he took advantage of his position as the most powerful man in the world in order to do this. I think we can all say, you know, whether or not he raped or assaulted her, this was a gross abuse of his power. And for his own wife to not be able to acknowledge that, I think is really tricky. And I think goes to show that the Me Too movement will just ignore women who are going to accuse Democrats and liberals. As women... I'd like to just take this moment to be grateful that our first female president of the United States is not a woman who is unable to recognize the problematic nature of her husband's affair with a White House intern. It's we are in such a moment for, quote unquote, women's empowerment and me, too. And for her. You know, maybe we can excuse her not recognizing it then, but not to be able to recognize it now through the new lens we're looking at um, at these situations through, I think um, I think is really a shame. And, you know, how would that look in history to go down as our first female president thought it was um, thought it wasn't that consent wasn't an issue um, when her when her husband, the president of the United States, decided to have an affair with a White House intern. But that said, uh, I do think it's a little 
unfair for Hillary Clinton to keep having to answer for her husband. Part of me is like, I want to be over this story. I want to move on. And the other part of me is like, no, if she's going to go out there on this platform of women's empowerment and identify as a feminist and be involved in these Me Too conversations, then she does have to answer for these types of situations. So I go back and forth. I think I have a little sympathy for her because I think more the blame and more the questions should go on her husband. Absolutely. But that said... Her answer was right. And I think that I think that, you know, women should are responsible for their own actions and for what they say. And their husbands are responsible for their own actions and things that they say. Right. Bill Clinton is responsible and must answer to and hasn't yet fully to the affair that he had with Monica Lewinsky and the abuses of power that he played, you know, in his role as the most powerful man in the world. Um, But she is also accountable for things that she says. She was asked this question whether or not it was fair game. Her answer is fair game, you know, for us to be able to critique and talk about. And I think that, you know, she is held up as a pillar and an icon of feminism, particularly among women in the Me Too movement. And I think that, you know, you and I have been talking about you just interviewed Juanita Broderick a couple of weeks ago. Another woman who says that Bill Clinton sexually assaulted her 20 years ago and she was there on the steps of the Supreme Court. Uh, protesting in favor of Brett Kavanaugh and him getting a fair process. And she told you in an interview that her story, a lot of the same senators that are there bending over backwards for Christine Ford, completely ignored her 20 years ago, right? This isn't a movement that's about all women. This isn't a movement that's about consent and freedom for all women. This is a movement that's about empowerment for some and silencing for those who make politically inconvenient accusations. And the last point I want to make about this, because we do need to move on as much as I would love to talk about Hillary Clinton for the whole podcast, is that um, there was a clip from that segment that I don't think has been getting much attention. And that is when Hillary Clinton attempted to play whataboutism and and say, why aren't we investigating uh, the alleged affairs of the current president? And... (laughs) I I just kind of laughed at that because by that standard, if Hillary Clinton thinks that Trump's former affairs that he allegedly had when he was not in the White House should be investigated, what does that mean for all of the alleged affairs that her her husband had before he entered the White House? That would open a whole new can of worms for Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton. And the fact that she attempted to... um, play whataboutism in in that respect during this interview really blew my mind because I don't think that's what she would want at all, but she got away with it because nobody called her out for it in in the media. Anyways, we'll leave it there. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Disney princesses. Want to get up to speed about the Supreme Court? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast about everything that's happening at the Supreme Court and what the justices are up to. Princesses are under attack. Actresses Kristen Bell. Okay, that's a little bit dramatic. But anyway, actress Kristen <laughs> Bell and Kira Knightley both critiqued and even said that they ban some of these Disney princess movies from their household. So in an interview on the Ellen show earlier this week, Kira Knightley said that Cinderella is banned from her house because she waits around for a rich guy to rescue her. And Kristen Bell, who voices a Disney character in Frozen. She plays Princess Anna. Anyway, so she critiqued Snow White as being really creepy 
and weird because the prince comes in and kisses Snow White when she's still asleep. asleep. And she said that, you know, you can't kiss someone while they're sleeping because they can't tell you that they want to be kissed. So I think she's right. Snow White's one of the creepier um, Disney stories <laughs> for sure. A lot of there's a lot of plot holes, but you know what? That's OK, because it's a fairy tale. Um, Kelsey, what are your thoughts on all of these, you know, newfound attacks on the princesses? Oh, it is. I I think. I think they're like trying too hard. They're reading too much into it. You know, these are Disney movies. May I remind you that said, I, I will say when you go back and watch some of these Disney movies that we all probably fond over as children, some of the messages are interesting, questionable. Uh, you wonder if that is the message you want your children to, to be getting. I think of, I recently watched Beauty and the Beast and that dynamic was really interesting that, uh, the beautiful, um, the beautiful princess had to fall in love with the, you know, horrible monster, horrible monster in order for him to turn into a beautiful, like handsome man, weird. Um, I, I, I look, I think, yes, some of the, some of the lessons in Disney princess movies are problematic. Would I ever have a problem with my children watching them? No. And when I, you know, heard this about uh, Kira Knightley having a problem with Cinderella, I thought back to my wedding just over a month ago where I, I grew up loving Cinderella. I used to want to be Cinderella every Halloween and my wedding day. I actually had a moment where I felt like Cinderella and had it not been for that movie, like, I wouldn't have had that feeling and it just made it all the more special that it is, you know, once you do fall in love and, you know, get to marry the man of your dreams, it is, it is a story. It is a fairy tale ending. And I think there's something beautiful about that as cheesy and weird as some of the lessons are from these movies. I didn't know that. That's really sweet. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, okay. Beauty and the Beast, for example, right? Number one, you, you shouldn't fall in love with someone and then expect that they're going to change, right? Because usually people don't change. So you should pick someone who's good. That's a really bad lesson, you know, to teach your kids. But I think that you can enjoy a movie and understand that it's a movie and be able to not take those lessons and apply it to your yeah. own life, right? And I think that there's aspects and things that we enjoy and yearn for, right? Like marrying a strong guy who is going to make you feel like Cinderella because he's such a good guy and he treats you with respect and he treats you so well, like the prince did in Cinderella. Um, and I think that having like that yearning and that desire for deeper messages and deeper things within the movie is completely fine. And I also think that this is maybe a little bit sophomoric and ranty, <laughs> but I think that our society is one that has trouble with recognizing like who heroes are and who villains are because our society itself doesn't isn't one that really has heroes and villains, right? Whenever something bad happens, whenever a terrorist attack happens, whenever there's a mass shooting, um whenever there's like diseases that crop up like the Ebola outbreak or the one going on right now in 20 different states with polo, polio like symptoms of kids. It's horrifying. We talk about, you know, there's no real like victim or there's no real villain or face to all of that, right? There isn't one evil mastermind who we can like take out and vanquish. It's a breakdown in our system, right? We always talk about, oh, our mental health system failed us and that's why this mass shooter happened. 
um, our intelligence community failed us, and that's why this terrorist attack happened. There's a breakdown in the system that we have, and I think that... I think that it's just troubling. We don't often have heroes. We don't often look to people and say, like, yeah, they're the good guy. These are the bad guys. And we're going to battle it out. And this is going to be what it is. Right. It's a lot messier than that because modern society is a lot bigger and is controlled by systems, not as much people. And I think that there's pluses to that. And I think that there's also downsides to that. And I anyway, I think Disney stories are so great because the heroes and the villains are so simple and easy to identify, right? In the case of um, Sleeping Beauty, for example, you have the evil witch woman um, who disguises herself with the spinning wheel, and she's the bad lady and who turns into like this evil monster dragon. And then the hero is the prince who comes in and saves everything. And I think that there's just something to human nature that likes that. I like simple heroes and simple villains. Um, and I think that Disney princess stories give us that where we don't often have it. That was deep. <laughs> I just think people... Or ranty. I don't know. Sorry no, for everyone I, who's I listening. I think it makes a good point. And, and to wrap it up, I, I think your, your point is as a society, you know, and I think with politics right now, people are blaming systems rather than looking at each other as individuals and taking personal responsibility. So I think you're exactly right. And if Disney movies um, can help remind us that we should be looking at one another as people and individuals, I think that is a good thing. And maybe some of these celebrities who themselves are Disney princesses (laughs) for their jobs need to stop being so woke. On that note, Let's let's announce our problematic woman of the week. Women. It's women this week. Yes, plural. So this week, French President Emmanuel Macron said some very interesting things about large families and about <laughs> women. So in remarks about uh, so he's talking about, you know, larger uh, families in Africa. And he said, He said, quote, present me the woman who decided being perfectly educated to have seven, eight or nine children. So So in other words, yes. Yeah. Backstory. This quote was going viral on Twitter and it got women real angry real fast because it's very offensive to the thousands, if not millions of women who are highly educated and have very large families. Uh, yes. But but most people didn't know the backstory. I didn't until looking into it more that she that he was um, making these remarks in in the context of talking about Africa and some of the, the problems there with very young girls um, who are not highly educated, uh, giving birth to you know multiple children at young ages. Um, so I, I think it's important to make that difference, but I don't think that diminishes the response that he got, because I think what he said speaks to a larger sentiment that a lot of, um, I guess, a lot of conservative women feel that there's sort of like an attack um, by the left on women who choose to have big families and lots of children. Yeah. And his remarks um, are part of a larger conversation that we are having Um, or that I should say elites are having about, quote-unquote, overpopulation in (laughs) Africa, right? So Bill Gates earlier this week, you know, was talking about how it's a travesty that there's just so many people there and we don't know, you know, really quite what to do with it and that Africa is becoming overpopulated. 
And, uh, you know, we Joy Pullman over at The Federalist wrote a really good response piece to all of this, just kind of saying, like, listen, the world isn't hurt because there's more African children. Like, are you really listening and understanding to what you're saying right now? Like, having more people is always a good thing, people that can contribute, people that can do things like that. And viewing people as a problem instead of individuals is also really, really wrong. It and sounds so, It sounds so selfish to me. To look at, you know, overpopulation in Africa as a problem, as if these people, although many of them can and do suffer, that doesn't mean they still aren't worthy of life and aren't capable of happiness. You know, happiness doesn't depend on uh, money and material goods. Um, these these people in Africa who might be struggling for some resources in a lot of ways could be just as happier if uh, just as happy if not happier than us in the United States. So I think it's it's such a um, cynical way to look at the world to think um, that you know they 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 in a way are that this is a problem. Yeah, exactly. And you know there are a lot of. Okay, I think it's one thing to say, okay, these are the challenges facing certain countries in Africa in their struggle to, you know, rise out of poverty um, and establish governments that aren't really corrupt. I think that that's one thing to say, but then to turn around and blame individuals that are having kids in societies that aren't as good as other societies, viewing individuals and people being born as a contributing factor in a problem is really problematic and trying to you know, control individuals' fertility or discourage people from having children, that's really, really messed up. Um, curbing the number of people that exist in an area isn't going to fix the problem. I mean, we've seen this as an approach happen in societies over and over again and completely fail. China's one-child one policy, um, you know, different things like that. It's caused major major problems right. for them now. You can't, you can't mess with the family, bottom yeah. line. And yeah. being anti-fertility, honestly, is anti-woman. And that's not something that you should be doing. You shouldn't be discouraging women or trying to control the number of kids that they have. It's um, anti-nature. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's yeah. really what I take issue with in a lot of these sentiments coming from elites who are just looking at the whole continent of Africa and saying, oh, too many people, got to reduce the number of individuals that live there, got to reduce the number of people being born. That's really, really messed up no matter what the situation is. They're looking at the system again and not the individuals. Okay, but to uh, get back to the punchline of this, so obviously there was some backlash from McCroon his comments. And so a bunch of women decided to respond. Uh, so they, they launched this Twitter campaign where um, women would tweet him about their education, their accomplishments and pictures of their large families using the hashtag postcards to Macron. So um, it's really an awesome campaign. I'd encourage you to look it up. It's it's it honestly is cool looking at some of these women who have Ivy League degrees and families of seven, eight, nine, ten children. Um, they're they're amazing, and I think I am honored to call them our problematic woman of the week. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that wraps up our show this week. Thank you all for tuning in, and as always, if you know problematic women. Please let us know. We're always looking for ideas. You can follow all my work over at thefederalist.com and you can follow me on Twitter at Brie underscore Payton and you can also follow me on Instagram at E.C. Payton. 
Go follow her on Twitter to see her fan mail that she got. Uh, someone photoshopped a picture of Brie in with a spooky background. And our producer, Lauren Evans, and I had some fun with it and uh, added a little detail. So, you know, go check it out. You can follow my work at The Daily Signal on Twitter at Kelsey J. Harkness and on Instagram at Capital Yoga Girl. This podcast is a collaboration of The Daily Signal and The Federalist and is produced by the wonderful and very patient Lauren Evans of The Daily Signal, who you can follow on Twitter at Lauren E. Liz Evans. I think that's right. Perfect. We got the thumbs up. Okay. <laughs> if you like the podcast, please support us by rating and subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate you sharing problematic women with your friends and for supporting strong conservative women who are standing up for America's culture. Have a good one.